You've been in uh, one of these well-designed, historic buildings uh, where you, you go in and within the building, maybe it's, maybe, I don't think there's one in the British Museum, maybe there was, uh, the Louvre, something like that. Uh, you go into the, these really grand buildings and there's a smaller model of that building that you just entered as you come into the foyer. You come into the main hall, and, and this, this little model, this miniature scale model, presents the whole amazing building to you in a, in a really compressed fashion. Right? When, you, when you're unable, as a person of five to six feet, right, something like that, you're unable to take in the whole of the, the grand, majestic building with its grand scope, simply because its size makes your capacity to take it in at once uh, beyond you. And so this model encapsulates the full architectural design in one easily digestible snapshot. It helps you have a clearer picture, right? A, a, a clearer perspective on, on that bigger view when the picture is too large to take in fully on its own. This model boils down the wider horizon so that you can perceive it clearly in an instant. Okay, keep that illustration in mind. Let's put it in our pocket for a second, but keep it in mind because we're going to circle back to that and, and really work over that. But we need to remind ourselves where we are in the book of Galatians. So last week we saw in verses 23 to 29 of chapter 3 that that Paul argued that the Mosaic Covenant had imprisoned God's people until Christ came with the purpose to teach them about their need for a Savior and about His work for us. It it grounded them of a sort to show them what Christ would do when He frees us from sin. So the sacrifices and ceremonies instructed God's people about what the coming Messiah would do. In that, the Israelites were reminded daily by animal sacrifices that that they needed a substitute to die for their sins. And then on top of that, the, the rigorous demands of the Mosaic Law made it clear through Israel's repeated failure that sinners cannot earn blessings from God by our, by our obedience. And so there in 3.23-29, to 29, Paul rejoiced that Christ came and ended that time of instruction, a historical period that was supposed to be temporary. Christ ended it. God had imprisoned his people under the law to teach them these lessons like parents might ground their children to teach them about the dangers, the consequences of, of misbehaving. And so too, God grounded his people under this Mosaic covenant to teach them about sins, dangers, and consequences. And after all, we, we see that very clearly, don't we? Because the Mosaic covenant ended in exile. The people were kicked out of the promised land because they repeatedly disobeyed. God's conditional announcement throughout Exodus and Deuteronomy, if you will obey my voice 
you will be my treasured possession, came to fruition. The nation continually disobeyed God. So although, and hear this clear, although no true believer ever lost his or her personal salvation, which was always by faith alone, the collective nation lost its privileges of being in God's of being God's treasured possession, and they were thrown out of the promised land. So God had intended that display of sin's consequences, our inability and our need for a Savior to become very clear under the Mosaic Covenant. Jeremiah 31, right, the famous announcement of the New Covenant, stated that the covenant God made when he brought Israel out of Egypt was broken covenant that I made with you, which you broke. Which is why God's people needed a new covenant at all. That wasn't like this Mosaic covenant. And in Galatians 4, 1-7, Paul unpacks the effects of that new covenant. He explains more fully what it meant that God's people used to be imprisoned and enslaved, but now are free and enjoy full sonship. And so our main point, our main point is that Christians enjoy every blessing that God has for his people. Christians enjoy every blessing that God has for his people. We're going to think about this in three points. A worldwide problem, a wonderful solution, and a way forward. So let's think first about a worldwide problem. Maybe you wonder, as, we, as we've worked through this history lesson about Israel and the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, why would Paul outline this detailed explanation of history the relationship between these two covenants as he's done since three, chapter 3, verse 15. It's kind of a complicated portion of Scripture, isn't it? And perhaps we wonder at times if he, if he could have just told the people what they needed to do and moved on. That would be more to the point easier to understand for us as we try to untangle these things. But we know, don't we? We hear in our day and age that sometimes people, maybe, certainly not you, the other people, get set in their ways and take a little bit of convincing to change course. Paul was marshalling a, a thorough, irrefutable case about why the Galatians needed to turn away from imposing works as a condition for salvation. He wanted a deep defense for why they needed to change course. But even still, why the long section about Moses while writing to Gentiles? There's a lot here. I mean, it makes sense that Abraham was justified by faith. Get that. Okay. Why an extensive explanation of this Mosaic covenant for Gentiles who were never under it? 
Could he not have simply just said to Gentile Christians in Galatia, look, God was saving believers by faith alone long before Moses, for example, Abraham, and you guys aren't even Jews. So just put this whole mess behind you, get on with it. That would be easy enough. But Paul took the long way around and unpacked all these details about this relationship between the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. And what I want to put to you, the reason for that, is that his reason for for doing that becomes clear here in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. So the, the point is easy to miss, but I don't think this is technical. There's just kind of some weird phrasing, and if we just inform ourselves about what it means, it snaps together. So the Israelites... Uh, imprisonment in sin under the Mosaic law is simply a smaller version of what's happening on the global scale with everyone enslaved under the consequence of sin. So the, the Israelite imprisonment under the consequences of the law of Moses is just a smaller version of what's happening for everybody as The whole world is enslaved under the consequences of sin, regardless of Jew or Gentile. And so we see the point of that opening illustration, right? We can reframe it to in reference to this uh, idea of a model of a building inside of that very building, (laughs) giving you a clearer picture of what's what's happening uh, on the bigger scale. It's a smaller snapshot of the bigger perspective. The Mosaic Covenant within the world, the Mosaic Covenant was that scale model inside the bigger picture. It is a a snapshot of what was happening across the world. We can look at the the narratives of of the history of Israel, of the Mosaic Covenant, their failure to keep the law and maintain their privileges in the land, and we gather from that. It's very clear that sinners aren't able to earn blessings from God by our works. That's brought home time and time again. And so the Mosaic Covenant is simply just a... As we enter the world, the Mosaic Covenant is a smaller version, a model of what was happening across the globe because of sin... The world under the consequences of breaking the law is that larger building containing the smaller model of Israel instantiating the problem in a clear snapshot. And so that that is why here in verse 3, Paul switched from talking about being imprisoned under the Mosaic law to being enslaved under the elementary principles of the world. It's a big long phrase, kind of what is that about? Uh, this master, these, this, these elementary principles of the world, has universal significance as the elementary principles, not of Israel, but the world. And how do we explain, though? How, what's the connection here? How do we explain the link between the law of Israel, 
and these worldwide elementary principles of the world, both you know, imprisoning everyone under sin. Okay, so, so how, do we, how do we make that connection? Well, we believe, don't we, that, that God's moral law, as, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, so the Ten Commandments is God's moral law, summarizes it, this, this law was built into the human heart, into our nature, because we are God's image bearers. So, so what this means is that God didn't invent the Ten Commandments at Sinai or ever, but these commandments are in fact grounded in God's own character, in who he is. Because God is truth, we don't bear false witness. Right? Because God is life in himself, we don't murder but work to preserve life. Because God alone has the right to create his image, namely humanity, we should not make images of him. Because God is the God who offers rest and has it in himself and, and built that offer of rest into creation with the seventh day, we honor the Sabbath by keeping the Lord's day. The moral law, as summarized by the Ten Commandments, follows from God's own character. Now, kids, uh, teenagers even, uh, maybe even some of us as adults, uh, maybe you remember playing with the little green army men. You, everybody has at least seen one of these, right? They're molded in green plastic, aren't they? If you've played with them well, they're going to lose a, you know, an arm or, or its little weapon is going to fall off or something like that. If you've played with it the right way. Uh, and you know that even, even when a piece breaks off, the inside is still green. It's, it's made of green plastic. Green isn't, isn't painted onto them later, but that green is just characteristic as part of how these little army men are made. And so it is with God's law for God's image bearers. God's law is built into us like the green is built into those army men. This, this doctrine that God's law is, is hardwired into God's image bearers is just called the natural law. God has implanted the moral law naturally into us as the creatures who are made to resemble him simply in the way that he made us. Part of our fabric as human beings, like green is in, is part of the fabric of a plastic army man, God's law is part of our fabric through and through, which indeed makes it, which, which is part of the reason why the rebellion against nature and society is so heinous. Humanity, God's image, is not arbitrary, it's not a social construct, it's what we're made to be. But we see from that why God's law has universal significance, not just to one nation that heard it at a mountain, but to everyone. God's moral law is these 
elementary principles of the world. Right? We, we considered a few weeks ago, and you heard me talk about it probably more than you wish, we considered how God made the covenant of works with Adam. In this covenant, before the fall, God offered Adam incorruptible and everlasting life in the new creation, if he kept the law in perfect obedience. The demand there was works. That wasn't a problem for Adam before he sinned. He was made with original righteousness, upright, holy. But we see here to teach us about the consequences of Adam's failure and our repeated failure, the the Mosaic Covenant repeated that condition of works. Hear me clearly, not for salvation, not for your everlasting life. Right? It was it repeated that condition for the nation's tenure in the land, their their stay in the promised land. That was at stake. If they obeyed the law, well the nation as a whole would be God's treasured people, blessed in Canaan. Individuals were always saved by faith alone. Individuals were always saved by faith alone. But this demand for obedience for an earthly blessing revealed in a really pointed and clear way the extent of our failure. And so Paul's discussion of of Moses is then really important for Christians even today because because Israel is just a snapshot, a scale model within the bigger building, that bigger building of the world's problem under sin, this worldwide problem. The universal scale of the covenant of works makes its details and its significance easy uh, easy to forget and easily lost as we live under its widespread effects across the globe and the fallout of it upon our race and creation. The Mosaic Covenant, because it's so easy for us to lose that perspective, the Mosaic Covenant encapsulated its details in a very local, in a very crystallized snapshot, making the fall's effects easy to see. In this way, it served the the Mosaic Covenant served as a scale model, right, a microcosm within the universal macrocosm of the demand of the law. So that tells us our problem, right, and how it's worldwide. Why, why the Mosaic Covenant is important for us to understand even today in the New Covenant. But we come now to our second point, a wonderful solution. So maybe, maybe you're wondering why it's worth having spent so much time on, on that particular point from this passage. Why the effort to get this understanding of redemptive history across to us here today. When we could have just brushed over it, right? That's, um, yeah, some interesting phrasing there, and we could just ignore it and go on for something easier, perhaps more practical. And the reason is that 
everything we just discussed, that whole discussion, now can put our spotlight very clearly on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Savior, not because of of some special situation in a plot of land in the Middle East. Jesus came as the Savior to rescue believers around the world. And for all of us, including you, here today. The, The connection between the Mosaic Law and that natural law makes it so important that when God sent forth His Son... Verse 4, Christ was born under the law. Not, not just to break down ethnic barriers, right? Not, not to remove mosaic ceremonies as if that was the dividing point between people. He was born under the law because we're condemned by the law. Yes, he was born under the mosaic covenant. But as we've considered, that was, that was just the smaller model of the bigger building, clarifying the problem that was happening around the world. For Christ to be born under the Mosaic Law's demands was a, a compressed display of being born under the law that requires perfect obedience from every human being everywhere. If if you, right, because if you managed, if you're looking at this small model, if you somehow managed to go inside it and stand there, since the model's inside the big building, you would still be inside both, right? And so what we see is that everything that Paul has described about imprisonment under the law, about slavery under the world's elementary principles, well, that's about you, Christian. Doesn't Paul address the Gentiles? Now you are no longer slaves, but sons. When the fullness of time arrived, right? People speculate, maybe that's about the Roman road system being ready for the gospel to go. Maybe it's about the spread of the Greek language making evangelism easier. Maybe it's about Alexander the Great unifying Borders and, and that sort of thing. I think the scripture tells when the fullness of time arrived, when God had sufficiently made the point through the Mosaic covenant that our works condemn us rather than rescue us, when that was clear to everybody, Christ arrived. God sent forth his son to redeem all of those who are under the law's curse. And let me point out something about this description of Christ's arrival that I think is really important. I think, I think so often believers get overwhelmed at, at, believers at every stage of life get overwhelmed by the summons to faithful obedience in the Christian life. Which is true. We are summoned to faithful obedience. And here's the thing. I I think that so many of us still do not quite understand or perhaps forget the better our need. They don't, we don't know how to put forgiveness 
and the need for new obedience together. How do those relate? Well, let's read through verses 4 to 6 together. And I'll add some things as we go. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. We've heard why this was the case, right? Now, now, And now we see the results of Christ being born under the law. To redeem those who were, un, were under the law. Because Christ bought back. We were under the law because Christ purchased his people who were under the law. Every believer. And now, as we continue, notice the purpose, the reason that Christ had in redeeming you. To redeem those who were under the law so that, so with the purpose that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ redeemed his people so that they would become God's children. Redemption results in adoption. And then Paul continues, And because you are sons, God has the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Here's the point. There's an order here. Believer Christ redeemed you so that you would be adopted. Put another way, right? The theme of the book, Christ justifies you. He puts you in a right relationship with God based on his righteousness. And that results in you becoming God's child. And then because you are adopted, the spirit indwells you. How do we obey God, believer? We know this, don't we? By, by the power of the Spirit. Right? We need the Spirit. We can't do it by our own strength. We, I don't have to defend that claim. We know it. We need the Spirit to strive after holiness. But the Scripture says here that your redemption in Christ, your already renewed right relationship with God, including your adoption as his child, that comes before and is the reason that the Spirit works in you to help you walk with God as your Father. And so, believer, God summons you to faith by the power of the Spirit, calling you to to believe, enabling you to believe. He accepts you, and then we're enabled to obey. We cannot earn God's favor. He must give it to us by grace. And once he has given us grace and forgives us, he enables us to serve him. Your believers live in fear about God's disapproval. But we see here your obedience isn't the ground of your privileges with God. Rather, you, you can enjoy striving after new obedience, not out of fear, but, but the fact that God enables you to pursue new obedience is a privilege of belonging to God. It's, it's not a, striving after holiness isn't an instrument 
to obtain something from God or maintain something from God. It's a blessing to be enjoyed. Right? Your unshakable relationship with God grounds your new obedience. And we live out of that. And that's our wonderful solution. Christ giving us his benefits. And that brings us to our last point, which is, which is short. A way forward. And, and here we're just trying to pull together a, a few directed thoughts to help us apply these things more um, concretely. Uh, as a guide to our to that new obedience. So the first question, I suppose we just we have to do this at this point. I, I, I would be remiss not to is just to put the question before those who may not be believers. Have you realized, given everything we've considered here, that there is a a reason built into our human constitution? That this side of the fall, we need Jesus Christ. I think so many people consider religion, you know, philosophies, ways of thinking that people just come up with. And what we see here is Christianity is, is not a belief system. It's not a, it's not merely a plan of wisdom invented to foist on the world to get people to think the way that we think. Rather, God's image bearers have broken his law and deserve condemnation. Christ, Christianity, but specifically Christ, isn't the revelation of wisdom merely He's the rescue plan to bring lost people the hope of redemption. And so I would plead with you, if if you haven't come to accept that you're a sinner in need of grace and haven't accepted Christ as that provision of grace, consider Jesus as a gift from the Father to reconcile you to the God of the universe and bring you into this family of God. Second, second, for believers, I just want to, I want to pull on that last truth that we're forgiven before we can obey. And I just, I just want to try to drag that into our daily lives a little bit. It's easy to get frustrated with other Christians when they bother us. Isn't it? Um, don't answer that out loud. Uh, they won't. They won't think as we want them to think. They they won't act on something quickly enough. They they don't get it right. They don't do what I wish they would do. Maybe maybe they truly disappoint us genuinely, not just perception, but truly. And in these in these moments we have the opportunity to reflect God's grace that we have received to our brothers and sisters. How so? How so? God committed to love you, believer. We see that, right? He, his stated pos- position toward you 
prior to enabling you to do the right thing is love. His committed disposition is favor and blessing for you if you are in Jesus Christ, no matter what you do. There may be correction, fatherly correction, but that's because he cares. You do not have to work and earn, to earn or maintain his acceptance. In, and so in gratitude, let's take that disposition on board and let's extend it to other believers. Right? When, when they fall short, let us have mercy, not requiring their obedience to our demands as the grounds to accept them. Commit to love your fellow Christians, forgiving them as God in Christ forgave you. Now, whether we receive that grace from other believers or give that grace to other believers, it reminds us of the goodness of God, doesn't it? He, he is the one who has set us free in the Lord Jesus. He accepts us, and I think we should take note, he accepts us whether we feel or whether we are unacceptable. We, we see love and grace clearly in the provision of Jesus Christ. He was sent forth from God the Father, born under the law, so that you would be adopted as a full heir in the divine family. Let's pray. Father God, this is a complicated passage. We know that. and We, we ask that as simple as we've tried to be, that you would make it even simpler in our hearts, that we would grow in our appreciation of, of the grace that is given to us in Jesus. There is a worldwide problem of sin, and we need to be freed from it. We need to be freed from it for salvation, for our everlasting life with you. But God, you do know that the world needs to be freed from slavery to sin on a bigger scale, that rebellion against the law that you have molded into the very fabric of our being is widespread. And we pray, God, that as as your character is imprinted on us, that in a renewed way across the world, you would remind people of what it means to reflect you, your character, your goodness, and help us to be renewed in our commitment as a species, as a race, as the human race, to reflect the goodness of our God, your justice, what you have built into creation. And help us as your image bearers to do that faithfully, as faithfully as we can. Not because that earns or maintains our favor with you, but indeed because it is a, a privilege to be enjoyed that we are enabled to grow in new obedience. And so help us in this.